Welcome to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. The Work of Art is a series of conversations with some of the world's leading writers, musicians, photographers, artists, and others discussing their creative process and their creative lives. Today's guest is Sean Feeney, who is both a visual and sonic artist. He earned his BA in music from Harvard and his MFA in Intermedia from the University of Auckland, and also holds certificates in forensic facial imaging from the FBI Academy. As a visual artist, he has worked at Lucasfilm's Industrial Light and Magic and for the Suffolk County Police Department in New York. As a musician, he has composed for the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Mass., and toured as bassist with Regina Spector. His work has been presented at MoMA in New York, the de Young Museum in San Francisco, and many other institutions around the world. He talks with me today from his home in New York's Hudson River Valley. Thanks so much for having me, Ted. I'm very curious, first of all, how far back you can remember in your childhood, and which came first for you, vision or sound? Yes, um, I've basically been drawing and sculpting for as long as I can remember, Um but I really fell in love with music as a teenager. And I'm actually named after my father's favorite musician, Sean Phillips. So his music was present throughout my childhood. And uh, it's funny because no one else in my family is a musician, but I'm the one who's named after one and ended up becoming one. Let's talk a little bit about some specific works for listeners who haven't had a chance to enjoy them live. Uh, the one that I first saw was the show you presented at the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco. Um, Musical Anatomy, which was a really neat mix of rich and detailed and fantastical graphite drawings, and then some analogous real-world sculpture, uh, some of which you invited museum visitors to directly interact with. How did that whole show come about? Was it intended from the start as a multiple mediums uh, exhibition? Well, Musical Anatomy is its kind of a theme to my work in general, and also, yes, yeah, specifically that set of drawings that I actually started around uh, 2008. Eight. And then the de Young Museum has this wonderful artist-in-residence program. And so I was artist-in-residence there for the month of June. And their residency program really um, fosters interactions with artists and museum goers. And so around that time, I've my work has been progressing to incorporate actual sound sculptures and wearable instruments to give people the feeling that I'm, I'm conveying with these drawings of being connected to an instrument, being in the center of a musical experience, and actually feeling it with your body. So it worked out really well, the timing with that uh, residency at the de Young that I could actually try these things out with lots of people, and I got a lot of really uh, interesting feedback. The visuals are wild, and obviously none of us will ever have an accordion or a saxophone for a nose. Uh, even those of us with large noses have never imagined it as big as a saxophone. Um, but at, uh, at the museum, visitors could put on your tuning fork helmet, which I think is called Overtone Crown. That's right. Maybe you could describe it and explain how it works for someone who's sitting inside it. Sure, yeah. Well, it's um, actually a modified bicycle helmet, so you can just imagine wearing something like that. And then I've got uh, eight tuning forks radiating out of it in different directions, and they correspond to uh, one octave, like a major scale, you know. And 
I play them with a violin bow. Uh, one, because, you know, I didn't want to be like clanking metal on people's heads, but also because when you play it that way, you don't get a strong attack. It's a very kind of ethereal sound. Um, because the forks are, you know, they're fairly small, you're not getting a lot of actual kind of strong vibration in your head, but you do get this very kind of shimmering stereophonic field of sound around you. And, um, I made this drawing that corresponds with it that I call the oracle, kind of a mix of the word oracle for the outer ear and oracle like a thing or place you'd go to for inspiration. And that was also kind of the bridge to my artwork, an attempt at visualizing what this listening experience might be and, you know, having those forks actually radiating out from you. So yeah, most people tend to find it uh, very relaxing and some people describe it as like, the sound of light. Uh, you know, one of my musician friends said it gave, it felt like he was getting goosebumps on his soul. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting how it, it sort of tunes people into uh, their own uh, inner life. Did you find a, a range of uh, responses from different people or did everybody have the same strong uh, sense of, of the impact? There's definitely a range. Um, in, in the minority, there are definitely a, a few people who kind of found it irritating. People who are maybe um, have sensitive hearing to high pitches, you know, th- didn't like it. Um, just a couple people who I think were musicians would actually sort of like shook their bodies, you know, kind of shivered. But um, in general, I, yeah, like I said, most people find it relaxing and meditative. The DeYoung Fellowship came about at a propitious time for you, as you said. How is it building a career when you work in such different worlds? It seems that uh, in in every realm, not just the arts, specialization has become more and more important recently. Uh, Given that you work in sound and that you work in visuals, has that ever been a challenge in presenting yourself to potential funders or hosts? Yeah, it's it's definitely been a, a challenge. There's definitely been times in my life where I wish I just focused on one or the other. But, you know, it, it really is, my, my passion is kind of bridging these two worlds and, and finding and exploring the connections. Um, but, you know, more and more I am finding people who, who find it interesting and, and, you know, want to explore this with me. What kind of a studio do you need to make this range of work? You obviously now live in an exurban area, which I assume is quieter than being in Manhattan or San Francisco. Uh, would it be possible for you to do your sound work in a more dense, noisy urban environment? It's challenging. And that's one of the reasons we moved to uh, Beacon in the Hudson Valley for the, the quiet environment, um, especially when you're working with people, you know, one-on-one and things, you know. The, that context of, you know, not having all these traffic sounds and things, I think is very important. I mean, right now I, I work from home, uh, and do what I can. I mean, I hope to in the future have a, a bigger space where I can work on bigger, uh, sound sculptures. What kind of a studio do you need? Is it all your own tools? Do you find you need to bring in external objects? Are you working with existing instruments or just playing with raw, rough materials? Uh, right now, I am working, well, like I said, the, the overtone crown was basically my bicycle helmet that I modified. So there is an element of seeing, you know, what do I have and, and what can I do with it? Um, and you know, another thing I have, I call somatic percussion station, which is really just kind of a reconfiguration of my drum set in such a way that puts the listener in the center 
and putting the symbols very close to their ears, um, kind of like what you were talking about the, with the whispering. If you're really close to a symbol and it's played quietly, like with soft mallets, you hear all these low overtones. Um, and it's almost this sort of like secret sound that you can only perceive when you're that close. And so it's, for me, it's kind of a way of like re-examining even instruments that we're used to and listening to them in, in new ways. Can your sound work be recorded and mass produced and disseminated, or does it really require the listener to interact with a single object and you in real time? Well, it depends on the piece. I mean, I do have a recording of the overtone crown, you know, in stereo, but it's not quite the same as, as wearing it, of course. So it can be approximated, but some things, yeah, you really do need to experience. And, and that is part of the idea, you know, of um, having a performer, a musician play the instrument that is connected to you. That's, that's part of what makes it special. Who are the other artists that you find are most simpatico and part of your community, either in visual or sound arts or both? Yeah, well, um, one artist I find really inspiring is Christian Marclay. He's another one who I think uh, has a foot in both of these worlds of visual art and music and has done you know, lots of really interesting projects. There's a lot of, of course, you know, musicians that I love and visual artists. I was actually did a workshop just last night here in the Hudson Valley at uh, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, which is the art center of Alex Gray and his wife, Allison Gray. And um, I had a really wonderful evening. I did a workshop showing my work and kind of doing some experiential exercises with listening and the overtones and, and playing my instruments for people and doing a little sound bath at the end. And it was, it was really great. It was a really nice uh, community and of deep listening and, and conversation. Say more about sound bath. That's a neat phrase. What does it mean? Yeah, I, I feel like it's just starting to sort of get into the vernacular since uh, a month or so ago, the New York Times used the term in, in an article. But um, it's something, you know, sound people use to kind of describe. It's sort of basically a sort of concert, but it's the context that's very different. People are usually laying down, eyes closed, and just totally immersed in the listening experience. So as opposed to, say, going to a club to listen to something where the music is just one factor, with this, it's really about being totally present with the sound. And a lot of times, you know, they're using instruments like Himalayan bowls, quartz bowls, uh, you know, didgeridoos, bells, things like that. And it's really kind of an opportunity to give people a sound-based meditation. And um, it's, it's really amazing how people, you know, when you really relax and focus on listening, uh, the responses people have and uh, how they can feel very rejuvenated from it. It's interesting when you talk about art music requiring even more attention. Uh, some presenting organizations are going the other direction in a search for younger audiences that are used to the noisy club. I'm thinking of uh, San Francisco Symphony with their new Soundbox series, mm. which is an alternative space, and they serve drinks, and it's much more of the what we think of as the old-school jazz nightclub, where folks aren't fully paying attention to the music often. And you're going in the opposite direction, demanding even more attention than someone sitting upright quietly in a concert hall. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think we see both of these trends happening. Like, there's also these um, camps or retreats that are technology-free, you know? Have you heard of these kind of things? Oh, sure. Put your phone on hold for a week and just go and be with the people you're with. Exactly. So I think there is also a kind of sense that 
you know, we need to start valuing just human presence and connection again and, and take breaks from the overstimulation we have. Part of the way you talk about yourself is also as a healer, and you have a, the phrase sound somatics. Um, maybe talk about what that means and why is that healing work as opposed to art? Yeah, again, I feel like it's sort of is in both of these worlds. Um, sound somatics has to do, you know, with soma, with the body, the whole kind of mind-body complex. And with this musical anatomy idea of being connected to an instrument, one of the benefits that I love about playing an acoustic instrument is that not only are you hearing the music through the air into your ears, you know, if you've got an acoustic guitar against you or a cello, you're, you're feeling that sound come right through you, through bone conduction, through the skin, and it's giving you this sound massage, you know, and um, it's, it's really wonderful. And so there's I, part of what I've been exploring with my sound sculptures, as well as things like, you know, putting put a Himalayan bowl on somebody and, and play it and ways of uh, using the sound and how sound works both in the realm of hearing and touch and how it can, uh, you know, help us relax and uh, feel rejuvenated. Have you done much study of the sort of history of performance spaces? I know folks are looking increasingly at uh, an archaeological sense at some of the original Greek forums um, because they were designed in a way that actually gave a, a fundamentally different experience of the sound. Yeah, I can't say I, I know too much about it, but someone actually just last night was talking about structures in ancient Egypt. Apparently, different rooms were constructed so that the the resonant frequency of the room would have a certain pitch. And, um, you know, I guess they would make sounds in there to, to get whoever's in there into that kind of resonance. You know, there's a great piece by... Um, uh, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Alvin Lucier. I'm sitting in a room where he records himself basically saying that phrase and playing it out in a loudspeaker and then re-recording it and playing it out again and just iterating this so many times that uh, the, the, the language breaks down until finally it's just the resonant frequencies of the room that he's in. So whatever space that piece is performed in it's going to sound completely different and it's going to give you this sort of shimmering oral uh, blueprint of this space. Are there any spaces in particular you would love to use for some of your work uh, for public performance? Oh, sure. I mean, I, th I think resonant spaces in general are really fascinating. When I was at the De Young, you know, they've got that wonderful Terrell uh, space um, and I did get a chance to play in there a few times. It's sort of a dome space with an opening at the top. And so it's very resonant in there. And um, it's, it's just uh, really pleasing to have that natural reverb. And so much of his uh, impulse behind it is, in, is also the visual. So he's working in two different media as well at the same time. Yes, exactly. For your solo practice in terms of making art, what are your ambitions? Where do things take you next? Well, I am interested in exploring more with sound sculpture, wearable instruments, uh, giving people this experience of connected, being connected to the sound and in the center of the sound. Also, other imagery that can be used, like my oracle piece, as a kind of visual counterpoint to a musical experience. And as well, I've got, you know, just some more st standard 
audio recordings that I'd, I'd like to complete and put out there of some of my music. How much of this life can be led from a place like where you're living, where it's a good place to uh, cogitate and work in quietness and solitude versus needing to be in cities for either friction with fellow artists or to find larger audiences? Yeah, well, that's something I'm still kind of figuring it out. I actually just moved to the Hudson Valley only a few months ago from the Bay Area. So still getting to know community here and get involved. But one of the draws was that, you know, this town is small enough that, you know, you really can feel like part of the community. And there are a lot of artists and musicians here. And um, because it's, you know, it's not that far away from New York City, there's still a lot of great, um, you know, musicians, for example, coming through and playing at our local bar restaurant. Uh, I got to see an amazing uh, solo Mark Ribot acoustic guitar performance a couple weeks ago. So it seems to be a good balance of kind of out in the in the woods, but also close enough to many centers of big culture to be accessible. And what have you found the most effective ways to get the world to know about you? Well, still working on that, I guess. But, um, you know, of course, the Internet and social media has, has been very helpful. Collaborating with other artists. Uh, but yeah, and, and of course, the De Young was an incredible experience. And, you know, they've got people coming in from all over the world. So that was really great, too. When you've worked in the past with existing organizations on a, a for lack of a better phrase, a payroll basis, whether it's Regina Spector or a theater or any place else, uh, do those turn into something longer term as publicity? Or do you just treat those as a paid gig with nothing that extends beyond the gig uh, as a benefit to you? Well, in jobs I've had, I mean, I've always tried to tr- treat them or find ones that can benefit me as an artist as well. So, you know, when I worked as a forensic artist, you know, it, it paid my bills for sure, but it was it, it also really helped me like loosen up in my drawing. I tend to be very detail oriented and, you know, draw every, take my time drawing every little detail. But when you're sitting with a, a crime witness and, you know, you've got to sketch a face, you know, you don't really want them sitting there for six hours. So it, it really helped me just loosen up and, and figure out how to you know, work more quickly and loosely and still, you know, be a bit more gestural. It also just helped me with, with my uh, interpersonal skills, I think, you know, being able to be present and listen to someone. You know, with that job, listening was also hugely important. The uh, The way that they train you in the FBI Academy for interviewing witnesses is uh, this technique called the cognitive interview, which is very much about uh, using very open-ended questions and and listening. Um, when I worked at Lucasfilm at Industrial Light and Magic, again, it was like two years there was probably like four years in art school, you know, because it's, it's, you're in the real world working with incredible artists and um, also had the benefit there. They actually had free uh, classes for employees in figure drawing, figure sculpture, actually taught the intro to Photoshop course there for the employees. Yeah, whenever possible, I try to learn on the job. That's one of the most fraught conversations in book publishing, certainly, is whether the MFA is something that uh, aspiring novelists should get. 
And there's a, a real divide with folks who say, oh, it's important for its own sake. Others who say, oh, no, it's just a credential. Uh, and then, of course, I should say there's three different aspects. Some saying, oh, it's, it's uh, not the right way to spend your time. Just go off and write or go off and live. If you were talking to young artists now, whether in sound or visuals, would you encourage them to go down the academic path or to just leap out into the world and do other things? Yeah, that's, that's a difficult question. I, I see a lot of debate about that these days, especially since now, just in terms of, you know, gaining information, we can, we can find so much on the web now, you know? And so it seems like if you're going to go to art school, and well, and the other problem is the increasing cost and people coming out with so much debt. So it seems like if you're going to go that route, I would say, you know, look for a place where you're going to have at least one really great mentor, really great teacher who really inspires you and is really going to invest in you as an artist. Um, and then also look for a community that's going to be really supportive because the one thing you that's hard to get anyway from learning on the web is, you know, a shared community, a shared space. Um, you know, and there may be ways to, to cobble that together uh, locally. You know, I mean, I've seen some visual artists uh, recommend going to uh, these ateliers, you know, to learn figure drawing and, you know, learn the rest on your own. But I think it also depends on what your ambitions are. You know, if you want to go then professionally into academics, well, that's a field that really values the fact that you have an MFA. Whereas, you know, honestly, it seems like most jobs these days don't really care where you went to school. They just want to know you can do the task at hand. Or in your case, showing off the art. And if the art was appealing this time, then presumably whatever you'll do on a fellowship will be equally interesting. Exactly. Where are some of the locations and or fellowships that you find the most intriguing as places you might like to be in the future? I am interested definitely in doing more of these residency experiences. What was great about the De Young was, of course, interacting with the public and museum goers although there wasn't a lot of actual interaction with other artists. So I would be interested in more residency opportunities in these kind of smaller communities of other artists to inspire each other and bounce ideas off of. Have you found um, tension and competition among artists, or has it, uh, in your experience, been uh, supportive and mutually encouraging? I think for the most part it's been supportive and mutually encouraging. I mean... I also have this <laughs> strange, I had this kind of side career in uh, fruit and vegetable carving. And I was on the, this Food Network show, Halloween Wars. And, um, and so I got to meet, you know, a few other pumpkin carvers. And, you know, we were all just so excited to meet each other as sculptors, you know, and, and bounce ideas off each other. But, you know, all the producers were trying to make sure, you know, we didn't talk to each other and stuff. And, and enforce the competition on the reality TV. But um, yeah, I, I think in general, artists are, or at least the ones I've been lucky enough to know, are excited to, you know, share with each other and inspire each other. This is so interesting, because when I first discovered your work, it was at uh, a fine arts museum, and you were showing spectacular drawings and fascinating sound sculptures. And the more you talk, the more interesting uh, tendrils and corners you've wandered into, <laughs> like forensic drawing, like carving yeah. pumpkins. Um, did these feel like art, or did they feel like uh, goofy gigs? Are they play? Are they serious? It's, it's been a little of both, you know? I mean... Um... One interesting thing about, 
you know, so when I was in the forensic art world and doing training for that, most people who were there were, you know, police officers who, you know, didn't have any kind of fine art background. And so the training was very much about like, you know, how to just make the most effective image possible. So there's no rules really, you know, it's like if you got a trace, you do whatever you got to do to make the most effective image, which was a kind of a different mindset than you'd get in art school. And then like um, with the fruit carving stuff, I mean, that came out of one of my, you know, personal uh, traditions really of uh, every year. I've been doing this since uh, I think 2008. For Halloween, I, I do a sculptural pumpkin carving that I call my memorial jack-o'-lantern. And I do a portrait of a musician who died since the previous Halloween. So, you know, kind of tying in my love of sculpture, you know, my love of Halloween, this, you know, connection with the day of the dead, honoring the dead and, you know, some, a musician that I really care about. So, you know, I've done musicians like, uh, Captain Beefheart and MCA from the Beastie Boys, Ravi Shankar, Pete Seeger, Ornette Coleman was last year. You know, I never thought of myself as some kind of food artist, but it sort of, you know, got the attention of that world. And then I, you know, I get this call from Food Network, do you want to be in the show? And I was like, okay. <laughs> but, you know, ultimately I didn't want to go down that path really. So um, I kind of keep that to, you know, my, my pumpkin project. And, you know, but I do get hired sometimes to do uh, fruit carvings for, you know, and for me that's more of kind of a business thing. And I guess since you do them only to honor someone who's recently died, it's not the kind of thing anybody is vying to be the next subject for. <laughs> yeah, not yet. But they sound a lot of fun. I, is there a way to embalm a pumpkin so you could preserve them? Or are these really time-bounded works of art? There, You can apparently put them in like vats of vinegar and they'll last a long time. Um, perhaps there's a way to 3D scan them. But for me, part of the idea with this project is the ephemeral nature of it, you know, as a parallel to, you know, music is ephemeral, our lives are ultimately ephemeral. That's that's part of why I chose that medium for this project. When talking about the forensic art, the one thing that also seems a little different is that there you are trying to capture a face in particular with an instrumental aim. Yes. As opposed to making art where the only aim is to communicate whatever it is that you are thinking. Um, does forensic art feel like art? Is it a, a skill set that anybody could learn? Um, potentially. There, I mean, there are definitely are uh, standardized techniques that they teach for one to um, learn to be a composite artist. But, you know, I mean, to, to be really good, I mean, you still, I think, need to have some understanding of, of facial anatomy and how lighting works, you know. So, you know, I think one can only go so far in terms of a, a sort of template of how to do it. But, um, I mean, another project that I, I'm still working on that, that grew from that experience is I, I call BFF. And, you know, I, I learned these techniques for making these composite faces, but I was only using them to draw, you know, criminal suspects. And so I thought, you know, is there another way I could use this for perhaps a more positive purpose in a certain sense. So um, I put a call out on my website where people could send me a photo of their face and the face of a friend of theirs, and I would draw a composite of the two and then uh, ultimately give the, the, the drawing to the friend. So it's sort of like 
giving a gift to a friend through a third party. Um, like I'd been to Burning Man that year. I was really inspired by the whole gift economy thing. Um, and then another layer of it is I'm, I'm then like compo- uh, combining the composites, you know. So taking the first two drawings and combining them into one and so on until I finally get to one drawing that you can sort of follow the lineage through all of these. And so ultimately it's going to be 127 uh, drawings. And I'm actually using charcoal pencil and um, I'm actually still working on it. I'm about 75% of the way through and I'm, I'm hoping to get it finished in the next year. Given the interest and your description earlier of, I didn't, uh, re- not remembering his name with the echoes and echoes that build in on themselves and end up as a resonant, a portrait of a resonant space. It seems you're intrigued by repetition and how those build up into almost the form of something. Yeah, yeah, that Alvin Lucier piece. I think there's, um, and I think there's also an aspect of hybridization that I'm interested in, um, you know, combining these faces, combining instruments and musicians, combining different genres of music, combining visual art and music, trying to be kind of um, a bridge between worlds. I tend to describe it these days as I'm interested in kind of investigating this connection between the, the physical, visible, material world of bodies and instruments and the invisible, immaterial, ephemeral nature of sound and music. I mean, and I also, I mean, I love talking about music <laughs> and, and musicians, and I can kind of geek out on that as well. Who are you listening to these days, mostly? Uh, listening to a lot. Um, I kind of went through a big Caetano Veloso kick a few months ago. Great Brazilian musician. Um, always always love Nina Simone, listening to a lot of her stuff. Uh, John Coltrane, always trying to get deeper into his world. Um, there was another great band that I saw here in Beacon recently. It's called Teague, T-I-G-U-E. It's a three-person percussion ensemble out of New York City. It sounded fantastic. And uh, listening to a lot of podcasts these days, too. And there's a great one uh, called Meet the Composer that's been doing some really great in-depth discussions about some great modern composers. Today's guest has been visual and audio artist Sean Feeney, who has worked in a variety of media, including forensic drawings, and even, we just found out, uh, carving of pumpkins. So, Sean, thanks very much for talking today. Thank you so much, Ted. This was a real pleasure. You've been listening to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. Hope you enjoyed this conversation and will listen to many more. Our theme music is by Mental 99 and used with their kind permission. A production of Ted Weinstein Literary Management, this has been The Work of Art.